0: Today on Clear Approach, we talk about kidney stones and why you really want to avoid having one. And then we talk to my amazing colleague, Dr. Mike Harrison, about commercial spaceflight and decompression sickness. All this and more coming up on the Mayo Clinic Clear Approach podcast, your home for aerospace medicine that matters. Well, welcome back, everyone. I hope everyone out there that is listening is being safe and warm with all this crazy weather that we've been having across the country. And you can go ahead and break out all the usual Midwest memes and phrases like oof, duh, and "Ope," because it's been a classic few weeks in Minnesota, aka it's been freaking cold as heck, like minus 20. It's so cold, I got yelled at at work for not having a ski mask covering my nose, and the podcast got stuck in the driveway, which is why it's been about a month since we last had one. The cold hasn't made flying any fun either. I did try to get out once. I did a frigid pre-flight like any good student should do, hopped in, got everything ready, headphones on, and you guessed it, the plane started just like my basketball career. Uh, Not at all. Fortunately, it is starting to warm up. It was a balmy 20 something degrees yesterday and I had the chance to do some pattern work while wearing swimming trunks. The only thing that's standing between me and my DPA and hopefully my license at this point is getting my long cross country done. I've done it a few times already with my instructor and some of the legs individually, but just not the full thing. Mother Nature has not been cooperating on that point. But as things are starting to warm up, I am certain that I will get this thing done before the summer of 2024. For today's medical topic, we're going to talk about a medical condition that I think about every time I check the fuel tanks during my preflight kidney stones otherwise known as nephrolithiasis or urolithiasis but those words sound like craft beers so we will stick with kidney stones so what is a kidney stone a kidney stone is a deposit of salts and minerals that form in the kidneys you can kind of think of them like the crust that forms on your faucets if you have hard water and stones are just like people they can be small large sharp dense, and are made up of different materials. Most stones are made up of calcium, but you can also have stones that are made from things like stervite, uric acid, or cysteine. Stones are more common in men, and fairly common overall, with 19% of men and 9% of women experiencing a kidney stone by the age of 70. Now for symptoms. What are the symptoms of kidney stones? First and foremost, a heck of a lot of pain. When the stones are in the kidney, they usually are asymptomatic. However, when the stones flow down into the ureter, the tiny tubes connecting the kidneys to the bladder, well, that's when men say they experience pain that is as close to childbirth as possible. Specifically, it's sharp and fluctuating, coming in waves. It usually starts under the ribs and radiates into the back and groin. There also may be some burning with urination, nausea, vomiting, frequent urination on top of that, and fever if there is an associated infection. Now that I've thoroughly scared you all about kidney stones, the next logical question is, what are the risk factors for kidney stones? First, dehydration. It makes sense, right? If you have more fluid, it is easier to keep salts and minerals dissolved. Too little fluid, then your kidneys start to look like a dry desert lake bed in Nevada. Likewise, eating too much salt and protein also puts you at risk as there are more things in your urine to form stones. Obesity has also been related, and there are a couple of systemic conditions, surgical procedures, and medications like vitamin C supplementation that can make stones more likely. Alright, so stones happen. How does the FAA handle stones? One of the biggest factors in the eye of the FAA is time. If you have a kidney stone more than five years ago and no symptoms, there's nothing to worry about. If you have had a stone less than five years ago and the stone is past or in the bladder, as verified by x-ray, then you're also good. If you're less than five years out since your last stone and you have retained stones, that's stones in the kidney, then a little bit more work is needed. You need to have a note from your treating provider stating that you are stable, without symptoms or complications, and without risk for sudden incapacitation. There also can't be an underlying condition for the stone. You can use medications for treatment to prevent stones, but of course, you can't have any side effects from that treatment. If you have all of that, you can still get a certificate during your regular AME evaluation. For everyone else, say like recent kidney stone with multiple retained stones, frequent urinary tract infections, then your case will need to be deferred to the FAA for review. With that, make sure you drink up, eat a sensible diet, and keep those stones where they belong, either on the side of the runway or rolling in concert. As I promised, now that the holidays are over, it's time to bring back some great interviews for this podcast. And my first guest is my amazing colleague, Dr. Mike Harrison. Now, I could probably fill the podcast with all of Dr. Harrison's accomplishments and credentials, so I'm going to give you the real button-down, concise version here. At the start of his career, Dr. Harrison completed a doctorate in exercise physiology, After that, he went on to medical school, where he also obtained a master's degree in hyperbaric medicine. After that, he became the Aerospace Medicine Fellow at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, where I had the pleasure of working with him. After all of that, he said he was sick of cold weather and is now on the staff at Mayo Clinic Jacksonville. So welcome to the show. Dr. Harrison, it's good to see you again. Uh, I guess the first thing I got to start, even with all of those credentials that I just put out there, what is your exact title now for all the things that you are doing?
1: So I am a senior associate consultant in the departments of emergency medicine and critical care um, at Jacksonville. Mm -hmm. And I've started my own company called Lightyear Medical uh, that is providing consultation uh, medical services for spaceflight. So operational flight surgeon services for launch and landing operations uh, and routine occupational health.
0: Excellent! What a fascinating and unique part of medicine to be in. Uh, I remember one of my colleagues in occupational medicine describing aerospace medicine, particularly commercial space flight, as a niche and within a niche within a niche field. And uh, you are definitely in that niche now. It seems like we've been hearing about commercial spaceflight for many years now. I would say even almost 20 years at this point. And it always has seemed to me as something that's really uh, still on the verge of science fiction. Uh, a, po- a great possibility, but not quite there yet. But it seems like things are changing the more I hear about companies like SpaceX and, and similar do you think we're on the verge of something different, a new frontier,
1: a new level for commercial spaceflight? Definitely. I think this is going to be a, a very exciting time. And it, it's all in the, the last two months. So in the last two months, we've seen the first um, fully crewed flight to the International Space Station on a commercial rocket with a commercial capsule. Uh, just this week, we've seen the announcement of the first fully private civilian uh commercial launch with uh the inspiration Four group that's um going up and so so far they've just named the the pilot and the commander uh and the other three mystery people um one's been identified but hasn't been named and then the other two are going to be drawn out of a lottery system um and i think that's going to become the the way of the the future and then axiom um also I, i can't forget about them two weeks ago named who their first four uh crew members are going to be and one's a retired former nasa astronaut and the other three are paying customers of axiom and that's so in the the last two months we've seen some big events uh and you can't even forget about the spacex um launches the test launches that they've got going on down in south texas right now with starship eight nine and ten sitting on the pad
0: When you start mentioning SpaceX uh, missions, I get all giddy. It's been really fun to watch all of their media that's uh, out on the internet. It's hard to believe uh, the images that we saw when Apollo astronauts first walked on the moon and how grainy it is. And now we're treated with uh, high-definition 4K uh, images. On the note of next steps with commercial spaceflight, it does seem that... Commercial spaceflight is in the area of billionaires and millionaires, basically individuals who have enough money to fund these really expensive endeavors. But what about the rest of the population? Do you think that in the future it may be possible that commercial spaceflight will become part of everyday life? Like, similar to jumping on an airplane and going to New York, we'll be hopping onto a jet rocket and flying from Minnesota to Paris in 20 minutes?
1: That's the, the goal, I think, of a lot of these um, these companies. And as they get more and more experience with it, I think you're going to see costs start to come down. Uh, and we're seeing that reusable spaceflight is definitely a, a possibility. Um, SpaceX has got boosters that have flown seven and eight times. Um, Inspiration 4, uh, they've announced that they're going to use the capsule that is currently up there for Crew 1. So when it returns, it'll be refurbished, and it'll be used again for the Inspiration4 mission, which I think they announced was late 2021.
0: Yeah, it's been really awesome to see how uh, these commercial companies have been able to really turn the dream of reusable space technology into reality. As everyone may know, that was the initial hope for the space shuttle system. But as we all saw, turning around space shuttles for flights was a a much bigger bear than uh, anyone had imagined. So that's on the hardware side of things. What about the the medical side of things? Meaning that astronauts are some of the healthiest individuals out there and have gone through rigorous uh, medical evaluations to make sure they're safe for space flight. Do you think it would be possible for the normal human being from a medical standpoint to endure space flight? You mean suborbital space flight?
1: I would like to hope so. Again, um, very optimistic. And you're right, the Professional Astronaut Corps has been very carefully selected, They've taken a very small percentage of a very high number of applicants. And NASA has been very open and the other space agencies have been open that what they do when they select an astronaut is pick people that they can buy down risk with. Uh, So they try to pick somebody who's as healthy as possible um, without any known disease. And what we've seen with the astronaut core is that things change as the astronauts age and get some more actual miles on them. The things that happen to the general population, like hypertension, um, heart arrhythmias, things like that have happened to astronauts and it hasn't been the end of a career for some of these astronauts because they've already had a significant investment um, placed in terms of training and experience that then the the risk um, benefit Equation changes and so what NASA and some of the other agencies have done is recertify these people with um, Those conditions To continue to fly and continue their career. So we do have some experience with some of these uh, Chronic but milder conditions flying in space. I'm hoping that we'll get more and more experience UTMB uh, Did a study with Virgin Galactic um, a little while ago where they put i think it was about 400 people in a centrifuge and it was a wide range um from 18 up to and i'm not going to be exactly accurate but into the uh elderly age populations into a centrifuge and put them through a launch and a re-entry profile in terms of g-forces uh and times and saw that most people did very very well with that even with um some things that would disqualify them from being a member of a a professional astronaut corps. So I think we're going to be surprised in in all senses. I think we're going to be surprised at how well most people do. And I think we're going to be surprised with the people that, that don't do well. I don't think it'll necessarily be somebody that you can risk profile.
0: So what I am hearing from that is that there is hope for guys like me. Alright, well let's turn our attention um, away from spaceflight and go to the other 200,000 feet of airspace and talk a little bit about general aviation. And just for the record, I didn't mention this earlier, but Dr. Harrison is also a pilot and IFR trained. In fact, we trained at the same school here in Rochester, and I'm proud to say that I'm training in the same aircraft that he became certified in for both private and IFR. So I'm really gunning for him to be the first person on Mars so I can sell the plane on eBay as a collector item. Anyhow, while you were here at Mayo Clinic, you did some interesting research looking into general aviation and decompression sickness. So tell us more about that.
1: My my MPH project that I did looked at the risk of decompression sickness among general aviation pilots. And so decompression sickness... People commonly know as the the bends, and they generally associate it with diving. Uh, when you surface from a dive, if you come up too quickly, nitrogen can come out of solution, uh, and depending on where it comes out of solution, you can have symptoms, and they can range from joint aches, muscle pain, um, all the way up to things that mimic strokes and heart attacks and become life threatening. What is lesser known is that this can also happen um, as you go to higher altitudes, and it's the same principle. It's a a change in pressure and gas coming out of solution. Um, So general aviation pilots, so the weekend warriors, people like you and me that get up and go somewhere for the $100 hamburger and the view along the way and some relaxation are at risk for this because there are some single engine, uh, non-pressurized aircraft out there on the market that can operate uh, between 18,000 feet and 25,000 feet. And the Air Force has used 18,000 feet as its threshold above which you are at an increased risk of experiencing these symptoms. And so if you're a single pilot uh, in an aircraft that goes to this altitude and you become symptomatic and if the symptoms involve the heart or the brain, the potential Uh, consequences could be catastrophic. So the question was, do people know about this? The people that are buying these aircrafts and and flying them um, to these altitudes, do they know that the risk is not just hypoxia, which you can mitigate by wearing oxygen, but are they aware that nitrogen, uh, the gas that makes up almost 80% of our atmosphere, is actually a a concern as well? Um, And what we discovered, so Dr. Toops uh, took it on as his MPH when he was a fellow, and questioned uh, a group of people um, on an internet chat board about this, provided a questionnaire, and was shocked to discover that a number of them were flying to these altitudes. A number of them had symptoms that were potentially consistent with having decompression sickness, uh, but none of them had sought any sort of medical care. And so we acquired a, a data set of... Flights over the course of a year in the United States of these small single engine, non-pressurized aircraft that had gone or filed a flight plan above 18,000 feet. And we got close to 1700 flights returned. Um, and when we analyzed wow. the float flight profile for how long and how high and fed it through a calculator called the ADRAC, it's what the Air Force uses to calculate their decompression risk. We discovered the risk wasn't zero. Um, On average, it was about 2%. uh, So we expected that out of those 1,700 flights, we should be seeing some events. And when we then went back through, excuse me, went back through the FAA and the NTSB's database of uh, safety events, we couldn't find anything related to decompression sickness. So the question is, are people having events? And if they are, how serious are these particular events? And are they being recognized? It doesn't look like they're causing any serious accidents. There were no crashes or um, injuries that were associated with decompression sickness. But if somebody is having symptoms and goes into the local ER somewhere and reports what happened to them, and now that they're feeling better, because that's the natural history of decompression sickness, when you come back down to terrestrial altitude, your symptoms usually resolve. So if you had a a symptom at 18,000 feet and then it gets better when you land you may or may not be seeking medical attention and if you are seeking medical attention does the individual who's providing the the medical care know to ask the question about are you a pilot how high were you flying and do they know about this this particular disease and the risks that go along with it and my concern is that the answer to a lot of these questions is going to be no
0: well that is uh that's pretty scary You know, when most people think about decompression sickness, they think about things like diving events, like you mentioned, or also military pilots. Um, Never did I really ever think about decompression sickness um, in general aviation flight when I'm just trekking along at 8,000 feet.
1: Yeah, you've hit on a couple of important points that we also considered. Um, One being that this was the tool developed by the Air Force. So predominantly it's being applied to young, fit healthy adults uh, that, similar to the astronaut population, has been carefully selected, whereas the general aviation population may be older and less fit, um, more heterogeneous. So the risk may actually be underappreciated based off of of our calculation.
0: Wow, scary stuff. Well, thank you for your research, and I'm, I'm hoping that this gets recognized more and that this leads to further improvements in general aviation safety. So let's switch gears now and and talk a little bit more about your career. One of the nice things about my job is I do get to interact uh, a lot with our younger population, brand new pilots, student pilots who are going to university, individuals who are interested in aerospace medicine. And you've had a, a really exciting career. And I thought it would be really interesting just to hear what your story is from when you were growing up and when your career started as a student, and how you went all the way to doing just about everything at Mayo Clinic.
1: Looking back on it, I think I, I come from a, a long line of people involved in the aviation industry. Uh, my grandfather was a soldier in World War II uh, with the Canadian Air Force and was associated with a, a squadron that was flying Hawker Typhoons. Um, my father then joined the Canadian Air Force. And was a helicopter pilot for many years uh, and then flew commercially for an air transport company. So I think I've been around things that fly um, for a very long time. I can remember family days, riding The back of a a twin Huey. I don't have the Eureka moment that a lot of people have um, when they go on the residency interview tour of this was the the moment when I decided I wanted to be uh, a doctor Um, and I just sort of shrug and, and move on when that question gets, gets asked. Um, What happened was I was uh, an athlete when I was younger um, and I still pretend to be one now play one on TV Mm -hmm. um, and thought that uh, sports medicine. So kinesiology was what I wanted to do uh, and maybe become a, a physical therapist or something along those lines. So I did uh, an undergraduate in kinesiology, and then did a, a master's in exercise physiology, um, and still didn't really have a, a clearly defined uh, career path. But I was definitely enjoying the environmental physiology courses that I was taking in graduate school. At this time, um, the Canadian Air Force started having some issues associated with neck injuries in helicopter pilots using night vision goggles, um, and they were curious what what exactly was causing the issue and what could they do to, to fix it. And so that became my PhD project. Um, I did a, a very in-depth analysis of some of the biomechanics and the exercise physiology from muscle uh, activity with EMG to muscle perfusion with near-infrared spectroscopy um, and started quantifying what the, the risks were. Uh, and it looked like a, a chronic overuse injury. From there, yeah. Um ended up uh discovering that there was a, a school in the Caribbean called Saba uh that at the time had a master's in hyperbarics. Um and so I did a, a master's of dive medicine, uh, worked at the hyperbaric chamber and, and became a, a nitrox certified rescue diver while I was down there. So it all headed towards continuing a physiology and an environmental and an occupational um bent to the, the entire trajectory. Uh, and I discovered along the way that the Canadian Space Agency had a elective for Canadian medical students to spend some time at NASA. So I did the UTMB short course back in 2011, um, discovered that the neutral buoyancy lab was in Houston uh, with a hyperbaric chamber, very similar to the one that I trained on. Um, and that all the people that were swimming in the, uh, the NBL were Nitrox certified rescue divers. So it seemed like everything that I was doing that I absolutely enjoyed and loved doing was consistent with what other people um, in the space industry were doing. So then when I went to medical school um, and then discovered uh, a program at Henry Ford Hospital um, where I could do a combined residency in internal medicine, emergency medicine, and critical care medicine, which seemed like the perfect thing for somebody who wanted to be uh, an operational flight surgeon for a space company of some sort. And so that, that was what I did. Um, And then uh, did my fellowship at Mayo Rochester in aerospace medicine. Um, And I've been fortunate to join the team down here in Jacksonville, practicing, um, I guess, all three, I've got my, my aerospace on the the side and my full-time day job is either in the ICU or in the emergency department down here.
0: And no doubt living the dream now. So would you have any last advice for our younger listeners out there as they consider their careers going forward?
1: So I have heard this from astronauts and other people in the, um, space field before that you have to love what you're doing. All right. Don't, don't do something to become an astronaut or don't do something to become an aerospace doctor. Um, do something because you enjoy it and it's rewarding. And I heard the advice, I heeded the advice. um, But now that I'm where I'm at, I can truly appreciate how true that advice is. And the reason it's true is because there's a a lot of hard work that goes into um, becoming a a flight surgeon uh, or anything in medicine that if you don't love what you're doing, you're going to question the effort, the hours, the, the personal and family sacrifices that you're making. And if you don't absolutely love what you're doing and value what you're doing, you're going to question why you're doing it. And then your your work product is going to suffer as a result of it. You're not going to be as good as you could be. You're not going to achieve your potential.
0: Wow, that is, that's really inspiring. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Harrison, for spending your busy, busy day with us. We all look forward to uh, watching your incredible career going forward, and hopefully that's going to be amongst the stars in the future. Well, that's our show for today. I'm sorry that uh, it's been a while since the last one, but things have been quite hectic lately with the COVID vaccine rollout and uh, the surges over the winter but things should be picking up here, and as promised, I do have some exciting guests coming up. In fact, I'm very excited about the next show, where I'll be chatting with Dr. Susan Northrop, the new federal air surgeon, and she'll be sharing with us some of her priorities and hopes for the future of the FAA. So make sure you subscribe and tune in for our next podcast, which should be out in about two weeks. Don't forget that this podcast is an offshoot of our Mayo Clinic Clear Approach service, If you have a question about your health and flying, you can log on to the Clear Approach Service at mayoclinic.org and send a message to us, and our team of aviation medical examiners will review your information and give you a response in about 24 to 48 hours. If you have any comments or feedback about the show, or you'd like to be featured on the show yourself, just send us a message. At Mayo Clinic Clear Approach dot blueberry dot net. That's B L U B R R Y dot net. Until next time, this is Dr. Van, your medical co pilot, wishing you great flying and even better health.